What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence guest is Randolph Bell. Randolph, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, Randolph, I always start with the personal, so I want to know a little bit about you and specifically like where and how you grew up. What was your family like? Oh, wow. Um, born and raised in San Francisco uh, on the west side. Um, bounced around a little bit. Uh, my mother, uh, also a San Francisco resident. I'm, I'm 54 years old, about to be 55. And so uh, my mother was pregnant with me 1968 at San Francisco State. Uh, right in the middle of the movement. So I think I got some of this stuff honest um, just around the arts and, you know, kind of being in this space of service. Um, I made it over to Oakland in 1991-ish, so pushing 33 years um, doing this kind of work. Um, I came over, I brought an arts business over here. I was um, painting, drawing, graphic design, airbrushing the first time it was cool you know when bbd was out and uh i'd paint anything uh but i really wanted to come to oakland um to you know just because i saw um i just saw black people doing their thing in a way that it doesn't happen in san francisco brought my business um opened a little store downtown i got into you know this pseudo politics on the arts commission and I really thought that this was something I could never do in San Francisco. Um, and I just never left. So you're not actively creating art right now, but I want to go back to when you were. You said you were a painter and an aerosol artist. Can you talk about when you were first introduced to art as a practice and what role it played in shaping the man you are today? Sure, sure. I'll go backwards. So I wasn't even doing aerosol. I never did uh, spray can art, but I was doing airbrush. Oh, okay. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So t-shirts, jeans, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, like yeah. Like you were writing the names down the front oh, yeah. of the, the pants. All, yeah, man. All that and a lot of portraits, um, that sort of thing. That was kind of my bread and butter doing portraits. But there was really never a time that I was not an artist. Um, I, you know, I took to it, you know, very, very early. I can remember winning awards in the fourth grade. So I knew it was always there. And it wasn't until I was 18 or 19 um, that I kind of started doing it as a business. Um, Went off to college for a couple of years, came back, and then that was just my hustle. Um, And then I made it over to um, Oakland. But yeah, I've been an artist forever. Um, yeah. And then I'm going to ask you the, the second part of that question again. How does being an artist inform your values, your principles, how you move in the world? Oh, wow. Um, fantastic question. Um, I just believe that um, arts and the creative spirit um, really drive um, uh, meaning for people. Um, you know, we can always have a job and, you know, kind of be on the grind, but just to serve ourselves, our souls, our body, um, it, it really, um, um, 
it has for me, it has been an outlet, you know, for many years and art is universal, right? It transcends. Um, there was never a protest, you know, in the history of, you know, of, of the world without art. And so um, there have been times where, you know, um, you know, I was using that art as a part of broader social uh, and community movements, um, you know, really even from the start. Yeah, folks ask me that, you know, because I talk about um, the intersection of art and social justice a lot. And one of the things that I, I lift up really, really tough is during the protract, protracted struggle uh, for justice for Oscar Grant. Like you could really say that movement had a soundtrack, right? And a visual oh, absolutely. track. You talk a little bit about that, the intersection between art and social justice, what the well, play out looking like? One of my uh, heroes, and he's actually my soul brother, just because we share uh, the same birthday of May 24th, is Emery Douglas. And if I knew just, that's who you were going to say. Oh, yeah. And if so you, oh, my goodness. So that, I love him. that dude. And just if you look at, you know, kind of the lasting legacy of the artwork that he was creating at the time when the Black Panther Party was formed, you know, it kind of shows that it was intrinsic to what it is that they do. It was art. It was writing. It was the newspaper. It was the, you know, the uh, uh, it was the music. Um, it was the band. It was the lumpen, you know, to, you know, yeah, that, yeah. To, to, to think that that the Black Panther Party had a house band. Uh, always cracks me up, but you know, um, still, no, my brother, um, Dr. Turu Ned, who was part of the Lumpen, um, just to know that it was, you know, kind of a part of it. And then fast forward all the way to 2020 when we're doing, um, uh, after George Floyd, you know, the artwork just exploded in Oakland. Um, downtown and um, the Black Cultural Zone, um, along with some other organizations, we organized around collecting that because that was, you know, really it, it was um, the visual narrative of, you know, what protest looks like. And so we wanted to make sure that we um, honored it, we collected it, we um, were able um, to honor the artists that made it, but we really wanted to, to collect it, you know, bring it down to Liberation Park, uh, Black Cultural Zones Liberation Park. Um, later, there was a book made of that artwork, um, but it was, you know, it was just incredible to see the proliferation of um, artwork all over the city, um, you know, coming out of you know the the tragedy of that murder and i want to i want to sit with that for a minute because as someone who is both an organizer and an artist right um i, I was certainly in this in the streets and i've been in the streets for quite some time and one of the collective conversations we've been having off and on for 15 years whenever these rebellions happen right is is around the the property damage that takes place and and you know, people feel different ways about it. <clears throat> the answer to that being seeing young people and black folks and brown folks and indigenous folks paint murals and political messaging over the boarded up windows 
And the conversation that that forced to continue even beyond people being in the streets, I just thought was so powerful because it made sure that the narrative stayed on why people were in the streets, why those windows were broken in the first place in such a beautiful way. Yeah. And it was, that got real complicated real quick for many of us, Mm -hmm. um, especially, um, you know, as we were collecting artwork, we collected hundreds of those panels. Mm -hmm. Um, One way, uh, the two ways it got complicated for me. Uh, One is that we figured out um, just in identifying the artists that there were very, very few um, black artists in that bunch. So Mm. that was one thing. And we Mm -hmm. just had to have a conversation about that. But two, during that time, and I think it's, um, you know, kind of the visceral reaction that folks who, um, you know, kind of are in this position of lack, um, not only lack of resources, but lack of understanding. So my gallery is, um, my wife and I's gallery is in, um, in the east, in central East Oakland, and there were you know, there were break-ins and, and, and property damage over here. And so they ran into my place, you know what I mean? Of all places to run into, um, they ran into my place. Um, but, you know, I understand, you know, kind of why. Um, but in the, in the meantime, there was, you know, again, there was all of this artwork um, that was created out of it. And um, there was this particular narrative um, they came out, it, at least it created a lot of ongoing conversations because we were able to bring in other folks like Oakland Art Murmur and the Oakland Museum into the conversation. We wanted to gather uh, and convene um, um, Black and people of color artists, you know, so they could have a safe space to have these conversations because it was, you know, they were angry, right? And that is not a time necessarily to, you know, that, that is not a kumbaya moment, you know what I mean? We have to uh, be allowed um, to, to, to voice our anger. Then there were separate conversations for folks who, you know, kind of wanted to help, you know, call them allies or whatever. Um, but we absolutely wanted to have that conversation so we could then come up to come together and uh, devise our own plan for ourselves as opposed to, you know, immediately coming together and making people feel safe because that's not really what it's about. I love that. Um, I'm going to stay on this intersection of politics and art. So um, in 2022, I'm going to pull up the actual date here because that matters. On May 14th, 2022, there was a white supremacist terrorist attack at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, where our grandmothers right? Our elders uh, as a black grocery store and our grannies. And for me, that was the piece that just hit the, the heaviest. Um, were, were murdered, were executed um, by a young white supremacist. And so APTP called for a, uh, a vigil, a healing, a place where we could come together, uh, led by black folks, uh, and express our collective rage and also get some healing. Um, and Randolph, you had a project up in OG wow. Plaza at that exact same time. I had no idea. Wow. We had not been in conversation. Um, you had been trying to get a hold of me, but we had been missing each other. Um, and then there we were. And then so yeah. talk to us about this Society's Cage exhibit that was in OG Plaza that made the perfect centerpiece for us all to come together around. That 
that really, um, that was, uh, uh, it was unbelievable. This was a piece that my nonprofit Support Oakland Artists had sponsored. And let me just back up. So this is a piece called Society's Cage um, that was developed by a group of uh, young black architects um, out of Washington, D.C. It's a national firm, but it was out of the D.C. office. And they created this piece in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Um, it was a 15-foot uh, basically a, a cage. It was made out of um, um, iron rods of varying lengths. But as they hit the, the ground, the, the, the voids that they created um, basically created a graph. And the graph was tied to the four pillars of state-sponsored institutional racism. Um, it was lynchings, execution by cop, um, executions, capital punishment, and mass incarceration, right? And when you dug into it, it had all of these other data points. It was just a super powerful piece. Um, it started on the mall in Washington, D.C., then it went to Baltimore, Tulsa for the centennial of um, Black Wall Street uh, massacre, and when I learned about it, I was like, oh, we got to bring it to Oakland. And so when we were thinking about citing it, you know, there were a lot of places that it could go. We were thinking Liberation Park. We were thinking Lil Bobby Hutton Park, uh, you know, but I'm thinking, no, it's got to sit in the seat of government. And so we were able to put it directly in front of um, of Franco Gallo Plaza. And so it's just standing there like a monument. Um, it also had the floor was covered in about 10,000 names of black people who had been murdered. Um, it had these uh, kind of uh, vignettes of stories um, uh, about terrorism. And then it had an eight minute and 46 second soundscape uh, for the eight minutes and 46 seconds that George Floyd was down. So it was a super powerful piece and you can walk up in and through it and people would just walk up and just like just start crying you know what i mean just because it just brought out uh so much pain um but it was sitting there when the buffalo massacre happened and so when you uh you didn't know that it was going to be there but when i saw that the this vigil that you you hosted uh was going to be there i just i just happened to be there and so it was just a really, really powerful setting uh, with you and the, you know, the others um, in front of this, this, you know, this masterpiece. It, it was, yeah, it was like one of those moments where, you know, the ancestors are. Oh, working, it, it was, it was created in light of white supremacy. And then this happened. That is why they created it in 2020. So, it was just a really, really um, unfortunate circumstance that we have to create these monuments, um, these anti-terrorist uh, monuments. So you mentioned that being a, a project of one of the organizations that you run, Support Oakland Artists. Tell us a little bit more about Support Oakland Artists. What kind of work are you all engaged in? 
So it, this actually started, the work started in 1994. It was a youth um, arts um, and entrepreneurship program. Um, it evolved over the years. Um, we incorporated as a, a 501c3 in 2002. And since then, we've been a, doing a number of different kind of activities, either around marketing and supports uh, econ around economic development for artists. Um, we've also done policy-related works, developing uh, a policy platform for the arts. Uh, we've been doing fiscal sponsorships. Um, and really, it's called Support Oakland Artists. Um, and that, that's what we do, simply support Oakland artists. And it's not just artists, um, but obviously focused on Oakland. And it's not just Black artists, but obviously we focus on Black and um, other uh, artists of color. So those that are underrepresented and, you, you know, they don't necessarily get the kind of supports that they need, that's really what... Um, this is about, um, and so in, in, in addition to, sub, you know, just kind of providing whatever kind of informational resource support I can, we also do programs um, like hosting um, Society's Cage, uh, professional development workshops, um, sometimes really just kind of direct support to artists. Randall, four years ago when we were going through the Oakland city budget cycle, um, you know, there's a group of progressives that meet each budget cycle and try to hammer out a people's budget. And four years ago, artists got engaged in that conversation. I'm not saying this first time they've been engaged, but it was an organized, it was a thing, right? Artists yeah. as a block organizing around the budget and doing so in partnership, uh, you know, with traditional organizers um, and really connecting the dots between the importance of making sure that we have a thriving arts uh, ecosystem in the city of Oakland and that being critical to having a healthy uh, social, cultural, political fabric in the city do you think the city of Oakland gets it? And I if not, I don't. I don't either. What are they missing? Lay it out for me. Why? If we're talking about safe streets, why when we're talking about, like, we really want public safety, talk about art as public safety, talk about art as, as a, a critical piece of the heartbeat, right? Without yeah. it, you flatline, I yeah. think. Yeah. So, like I said, early when I first got to Oakland, um, I started doing some pseudo political work. So just being on the arts commission and just understanding how it worked from that side. And then later on, just through the policy development, I, uh, we created an art census, trying to inventory and assess the economic and community impact of the arts, trying to mobilize artists around some of these economic and policy related issues. Um, that was uh, specifically around a um, a mayoral election. It was probably about 2010-ish is when we did the art census. Um, but, uh, and then later I was the chair of a, um, in the Dellums administration, it was a um, task force on arts and economic development. Um, like I typically always go back to the economic development issue just because um, as artists, we need to not only get support, but we need to, you know, kind of generate, you know, kind of environment so we can support ourselves. That's always been my thing. Um, most of the work that I've done 
Um, certainly my several businesses and in, in, in at this point I've had five commercial five facilities, arts facilities, and none of them have been grant driven. I just think that there is a much um, uh, more direct way to support yourself um, than waiting to somebody for somebody to do it. But that does not, uh, um, you know, absolve um, our municipality from supporting the arts. And I just don't think that they have ever made the connection. You know, we were without a um, a arts commission for many, many years for lack of, um, so we had no arts policy uh, making body, uh, community um, informed um, body. And the arts have never been, um, they have never risen to the cabinet level, right? It's been bounced between different departments, economic development, the museum, parks and recs, but it has never um, risen to the level um, that they have a cabinet level that they have, you know, kind of direct um, uh, influence on the city budget. And so we're always getting crumbs. Um, and this whole policy, um, this whole policy realm, it just takes a lot of time, effort, resources, a lot of persistence. And that's not what <laughs> a lot of artists are great at. You know, you can kind of get them out to a meeting or two. But if you say, you know what, um, there's an economic development meeting, there's a planning commission meeting, there's a life enrichment uh, committee meeting. Um, we need you to come at this time, this time, this time. We need you to stay. We need you to speak all the rest of that stuff. That's not necessarily, you know, um, <laughs> uh, always a reliable strategy. <laughs> we'll just say that. Um, and so I do think that we have to have the balance. But if you look at other cities that don't have the kind of natural resources in terms of the arts or the history, the legacy, or the primacy of Oakland, you they're cities in the middle of the damn desert who just you know what we're gonna be the arts capital of whatever and people is gonna come you know what i mean and they do you know i went to sedona this place is in new mexico it's like they don't have any of the resources human or otherwise that we have here but it has been lifted up and the investment has been made from a marketing and a cultural tourism standpoint to bring people here to support artists. Um, as it uh, shows up here in Oakland, you know, really most of the, uh, the efforts around that uh, for many years was around uptown. It was around downtown, but there were none of us downtown at the time. You know what I mean? My for one, two, three, four, fourth, um, fourth art space was called um, OaklandArt.com. We opened it, opened it in um, in uh, 1998 in what is now called Crybaby was um, the Uptown Bar, and before that the Black Box. But we were the first ones in myself. Um, 
uh, Daryl Thompson from Oakland Inc. That's right now 14th and and Franklin, the tattoo shop. Um, a few other partners, uh, Kay Bacante from Red Bay, uh, Tracy Bartlow from uh, B Loves Guest House. Um, we were there and it was all black, right? 1998, there was nothing down there and we got nothing to support us either. So we were just down there waiting for all that to happen. And, you know, we were obviously, a, you know, kind of ahead of the curve. So we lasted until about 2000. But, you know, there's this focus on downtown and attracting new residents as opposed to supporting the existing residents. Right. And so we don't have a and we had made suggestions along the way to have a um, traditional cultures kind of uh, uh, funding program, you know, kind of, the, you know, supporting the folks who are here and who have been here as opposed to just supporting, you know, the folks that are coming because obviously it's, you know, kind of a different set of people coming than the ones that are here. So I think it's that basic understanding of how do you support, you know, and I hate to say it, but, you know, it's kind of like um, uh, a lot of times people don't want to support their own. They want to support the thing that they believe people are going to want to see. So if you don't value what it is that you are, you know, where you came from, you know, then you're going to try and find something else that you think is more marketable, is more uh, commercially viable and that sort of thing. Um, and we all think that, you know, the folks who are here, you know, I'm, I'm a transplant. It's, it's 30 some years, but I'm still a transplant. There was, you know, an incredible arts legacy before I got here. And I think that that is, you know, kind of really, you know, kind of a valuable um, uh, um, commodity, which I don't think, um, you know, our administrations, uh, not, not just this one or the past one, just, you know, for, you know, many uh, different administrations, I don't think that they have figured that out. Um, they haven't figured out our facilities thing. They haven't figured out the cultural investment thing. Um, you know, they haven't figured out how to position Oakland and Oakland arts and culture on a world stage. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I'll, I'll leave it there for a moment. All right, Randolph Bellin, we've got to leave it there, too. And we barely scratched the surface of the work that you do. If people want to learn more about you, where can they find you on the socials? Oh, wow. Um, I'm Randolph Bell with an E on the end, almost anywhere. Um, RandolphBell.com has all of the, the various um, uh, kind of outlets as RBA creative, the, the, the place that I run with my wife here, it's got support Oakland artists and it's got creative development, which we didn't talk about. Um, and that is, um, um, the highlight as it relates to the arts there is that we were just able to purchase two and a quarter acres in West Oakland, um, which has about 40 different makers, 
um, operations on it already, and we are working to build out a an incubator for Black food and beverage entrepreneurs. So that's called O2AA.com, O2 Artisans Aggregate. Um, but, you know, like you can catch me at RandolphBell.com. All right, Brother Randolph, thank you so much for coming on the show. Family, you've been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. And this week's Resistance in Residence guest is Randolph Bell. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance in Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. Mm -hmm.